Good evening, Edgewater, sitting in your homes. I pray that today was well for you. Um, and that as we sit here and we study your, this word that's been given to us, as we worshiped together, even though we were separate, that it is well with our souls. Let's start out this evening with prayer. So Father, I lift up our country this day. I lift up our leaders in Washington and Salem, Lord, and locally. Lord, I lift up moms at home with kids trying to figure out how to balance this thing, Lord. I lift up business owners. I lift up the elderly, Lord. I lift up our congregation and our community. Father, this doesn't scare you, surprise you, concern you. You're concerned for us, but you're not, it's not outside of what you can do, Lord, or your plan. So I thank you for that this evening. I thank you for the assurances we have in your word, even in this passage tonight. So be with us. Teach us this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. When I was 15 or 16 years old, so like 1996, 1997, we as a family started going out to Applegate Christian Fellowship um, to go to church. And we started really plugging into the Wednesday night Bible studies there, um, teaching through the Bible, book after book after book, chapter after chapter, verse after verse. And there was this thing that, um, that John would always say. He'd always say, isn't it surprising how often where we are in the word is exactly where we are in life. And I don't think that's ever been more true for me as a student and as a teacher than with tonight's chapter. Because we're in Exodus chapter eight. We're in the middle, the beginning middle of the plagues. I mean, this chapter is about a nation in crisis. Last chapter, the Nile was turned to blood. This chapter, we have frogs, and we have gnats, and we have flies. And the thing we have to remember is that God never told Israel, never told Moses, never told anybody how many plagues there would be. Israel doesn't have a clue. All they know is that God said he would judge Pharaoh and Pharaoh would let them go. But every day, things are getting worse. And every day, nothing seems to change. If you're an Israelite, you wake up in the morning, right? You check your news feed, which means opening the window and looking out the door. And what do you see? We're still slaves. And yay, there's frogs everywhere. Goody. It's not getting better. And Moses, poor Moses, man, I really start to feel for this guy. Are you guys feeling for Moses? Because Moses, Moses didn't want this job to begin with. Remember? Chapters three and four, Moses' interaction with God, the burning bush. God says, Moses, I want you to go and set my people free. And Moses is like, no, 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 I, 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 you got the wrong guy. God says, no, Moses, it's really you. And Moses said, no, 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 it's, it's not. It's not. It's not me, God. Send someone else. And so God partners Moses up with his brother Aaron and he sends them. And Moses goes. He's obedient. And I love that about Moses. And he goes in front of Pharaoh in chapter five and it, it, it doesn't go well, does it? No. Pharaoh takes away the straw. Now they have to make bricks without straw and it gets worse. And what does Moses say at the end of chapter five? Why have you done this, Lord? You have not delivered your people at all. I mean, Moses is, he's having a hard time. And then chapter six, God comes alongside of him and he encourages him. Okay, Moses, this is my promise. This is how I'll be there. This is how it is. And, and Moses gets encouraged, right? But then Moses ends chapter six by saying, how is Pharaoh even gonna listen to me? I always feel that in my own heart 
in difficult times. I go, oh, yes, yes, yes. Then, oh, yes, yes. I, I, I identify with Moses. And then we have chapter seven. That's last chapter. Moses goes in front of Pharaoh and he finally has a win, right? He does all the things that God told him to do. He turns his staff into a snake and it eats up the magician's staff. And he sticks his hand in his cloak and it becomes leprous. And then they turn the Nile into blood. We're talking an enormous river becomes blood. And Moses must have thought, that's it. That's God smiting Pharaoh. Now's our time. Pharaoh is going to let us go. And then chapter seven ends with this verse. It says this, seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. And I got to tell you, until about a week and a half ago, I did not understand the full implication of this word full. Full days passed. And Moses, every day he gets up and he looks out and things are just getting worse. There's no water. They're trying to dig wells. This land stinks. Fish are dying. It's 250 people and then it's 25 people and then it's 10 people and then you can't meet at all. And every time you look, it's like it's getting worse. Full days. Full days have passed for Moses. And if I could jump into the story right now, if you could jump into this story right now and talk to Moses, what would you tell him? What would you tell Moses, right? Dude, keep going, man. Keep going. Keep going back to Pharaoh. Trust God, Moses. Trust God. Moses, man, it might get worse, but it will get better. This too will pass, right? You'd be so encouraging to Moses. You might even tell him, hey, when this crisis is over, there's gonna be more crises. It's gonna look like this whole thing ends and then before you know it, you're gonna be standing in front of a wall of water and there's gonna be an army behind you. Don't even freak out then. God's still in control, Moses. God still has a plan, Moses. And we would say this to Moses with absolute confidence. Why? because we know how the story ends, right? We know how the story ends. And that's the theme I want us to look at in chapter eight tonight. In a time of crisis, how do I take my own advice to Moses? How do we, how do I live like I know how the story ends? How do we do that? And you might sit back here today and be like, you know, it's all nice to say, but like, we don't know how this story is going to end. Could be a week. It could be months. I could lose my business. This could be the new Italy. Nothing else could happen. What's going to happen to my friend who's in New York City? What's going to happen when I kill my children because they've been home for too long? We don't know how this story is going to end. But here's the thing, brother and sister, Christian, this isn't the story. It's part of the story, yeah. It's an important part of the story. The plagues are an important part of Moses' story, but it's not the whole story. You see, as believers in Jesus Christ, our story is eternally long. It's eternally long. We always say things like, well, it, always, it ends in heaven, right? That's the ending of this. That's not the end. When we've been in heaven for a hundred million years feasting and celebrating and creating, because I believe we're going to do that with the Lord, and traveling and exploring this universe that he's built. When we've been in heaven for a hundred million years, it's still the beginning of the story. And we have to keep that always in perspective. The Bible tells us to keep that in perspective. Live with your hope in heaven. But even as you live with your hope in heaven, the other thing the Bible says that's so important is hope in heaven, but how you live right now really matters. It really matters. 
I want to live like I know the end of the story, because I do. So as we look through chapter eight, as we look through how Pharaoh reacts and Moses reacts and all these little things in chapter eight, that's our big thing. What can we learn from a nation in crisis about how we today can live like we know the the end of the story? Live like we know how the story ends. And how can we live during the next crisis how the story ends, right? Because this crisis seems huge because it's collective. But every single Sunday when we meet, there are people going through crises. There are friends whose marriages are falling apart. There are families who are wondering, will my wayward child, son or daughter ever come back to the faith? There are single moms trying to figure out how they're gonna make ends meet. I mean, yes, we look at it today and we look at it in the context of this virus and this thing that's going on. But this is timeless for us. These are, every time I find myself in difficulty from here on out, I'm gonna come back to Exodus chapter eight and the things that I've learned in the last few weeks studying because they're brilliant. So here we go. Exodus chapter eight. Verse one, it says this. Then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up on you and on your people and on all your servants. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals and over the pools and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. And Moses said to Pharaoh, be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and for your servants and for your people that the frogs be cut off from you and your house and be left only in the Nile. And he said, tomorrow, And Moses said, be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs shall go away from you and your houses and your servants and your people. They shall be left only in the Nile. So Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh and Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs as he had agreed with Pharaoh. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses, the frogs died out in the houses the courtyards, and the fields. And they gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. The first thing that I see in this chapter that I learned from frogs is this. If we wanna live like we know how the story is going to end, we have to acknowledge that God is working. We have to acknowledge that God is working. See, there's this really weird interaction in the middle of this story. I'm gonna read it again for you. Here's what it says, verse nine. So remember, there's frogs everywhere. Moses, sorry, Pharaoh finally comes to Moses. He says, Moses, talk to Yahweh get rid of the frogs, okay? We're losing our minds here. There's frogs everywhere. And Moses says this. Moses said to Pharaoh, be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and for your servants that the frogs be cut off. And he said, tomorrow. What? What? You gotta be kidding me. Like, 
Pharaoh comes to Moses, get rid of the frogs. Moses says, when do you want the frogs gone? Pharaoh says, nah, tomorrow. Now, now, I want the frogs gone. Now, what is Pharaoh doing? And the suggestion that I read, and it makes total sense to me because I'm human and I would do something like this. Pharaoh wants to take credit. See, Pharaoh just found out when the frogs are gonna disappear. And now Pharaoh can go around and tell everybody, hey, I'm Pharaoh and I'm gonna get rid of the frogs tomorrow. Pharaoh wants to take credit. And instead of the frogs disappearing, what do they do? They just die in place and there's heaps of stinking frogs everywhere. I find that funny. That's God pulling the rug out from underneath Pharaoh's plans. But here's the thing. In the middle of difficulty, we cry out to God for deliverance, for comfort, for a miracle. And then all too often, I think that we allow something or someone else to get the credit for what God does. And it stinks. See, I had this conversation with someone years ago and it's always stuck out with me. Like they had had a very, very troubling medical scan. Showed all these problems with this part of their body. Just freaking out, like really bad. And they called family and family was praying for them and I heard about it, so I was praying for them and we're all praying for them and they're gonna go back in to another doctor and they're gonna figure out what they're gonna do. And they, we, the, they called us and they're like, oh, we're so glad, so glad. The doctor took another scan and figured out that the first machine had a malfunction because now the scan shows nothing. And I was like, machine malfunction? No, miracle. That's not machine malfunction. That's miracle. You had a scan that showed all these horrible things. Everyone was praying for you. You had another scan and everything is gone. But we're so quick to justify and to explain things away. And you know what? There are machines that make mistakes. That stuff can happen. But I would much rather err on calling a bad scan a miracle than on calling a miracle a mistake. Because every good and perfect gift comes from the Father. And we have to acknowledge that even more so in times of difficulty, whether it be a virus, whether it be your marriage, whether it be with your kids, any time of difficulty, God is still working. And it is unbelievably important that we acknowledge that. Because here's what happens. When we acknowledge that God is working, we cannot help but be thankful. And that's the second half of this point. It's not just acknowledge that God is working. It's this, be thankful. Because here's the biblical truth that's so important. Thanksgiving leads to peace. I'll give you a couple of verses. Colossians 3, verse 15. Here's what it says. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. What's linked there? Peace and thankfulness. How about this one? Philippians 4, 6 through 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That's it right there. Print that verse out and post it on your mirror. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything with thanks, and you'll receive peace. Thanksgiving unlocks peace. But in order to be thankful for the things that God is doing, we have to recognize that he is at work and acknowledge it. Are you filled with fear right now? Are you wanting peace? I really believe that the key, one of the keys to unlocking it is being thankful for the things that God is doing. Look for them. 
Pray for them. God, open my eyes that I can see how you're working even in this. It's so important, right? Because if we're gonna live like we know how the story ends, we have to acknowledge that God is working and be thankful. And then the next thing that we have to do is this. Pray for a permanent change. Number two, pray for permanent change. Look at how this little passage ends here. It's verse 15. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen. I totally identify with Pharaoh right here. I do. Because I just want things to go back to normal. I just want things to go back to the way they were. I've been praying for a week and a half. Lord, just make this thing end so everything can go back to the way it used to be. And I'm starting to think it's been pressed on my heart. That's not the right prayer. That's not the right prayer. Oh, absolutely pray that God would heal our nation and this would end. But the other part of that prayer is this. God, how do you want to change me in this circumstance? How do you want to change me through this? Not status quo, but a life-changing, altering experience for me. So here's the thing. I found out recently that I'm not a friendly person. Okay, I actually, you guys probably knew that, right? You guys are probably like, yeah, well, duh, you're not a very friendly person. You never said hi to me. Um, Because apparently I don't say hi to people. I don't engage people. Um, I'm nice, but I Apparently, that's not the same thing as friendly. Who knew, okay? So a doorkeeper a couple months ago was like, you've never, ever said hi to me. And I'm like, okay, that's bad. Okay, but that's one person. That's a one-off, you know? Um, And then recently, I was in Africa with Dick Worthington, and he had just got off the phone with his wife, Carol. And I'm like, what were you talking about? And he's like, oh, I, I was telling her how funny you are. And I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, totally, I'm funny. And he goes, yeah, and she couldn't believe it. Like, she didn't even know that you smile. Like, What? He's like, yeah, you've never even talked to my wife. I'm like, oh my goodness, okay. That's two, right? And three, you always know. When the third one hits, you know, yep, this is truth. I'm in trouble. And the third one hit me the other day when I talked to my neighbor. So I went over to talk to my neighbor the other day. um, And I live in a cul-de-sac, right? So we live right next to each other. I mean, we are neighbors. And I was trying to reach out because she's older, And I said, hey, you know, like if you need anything now, like I can run to the store for you. I can pick things up. I'd listen to to Matt's thing about that. And I was super inspired. I'm like, okay, yes, I can do that. I can go, I can talk to my neighbor. And she said this, this is what she said. She said, maybe this is the time when we all start watching out for each other. And she was super great about it. That was her thing. She's like, oh, awesome. Maybe this is the time when we all start watching out for each other. And it just hit me. I'm like, I've lived next to you for seven years. And now is the first time you know that I am willing to watch out for you? Like, that's sad to me. Because before that, I'd only had one long conversation with my neighbor, okay? And it was like the first year that we moved into the house. So the first year that we moved into the house, I did all this front yard gardening. I planted all these beautiful flowers. And there was this black cat that kept coming and thinking that my flowers were its litter box, okay? And my flowers kept dying and I was not happy, okay? And then I see my neighbor and she looks kind of like a cat lady. So I'm like, all right. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna be very nice about this. I'm a very PC. And I say, is that black? I said, oh, that's what I said. I said, do you know whose black cat that is? And she goes, no, but if you shoot it, I'll dig a hole. <laughs> and I'm like, I, so obviously I like this person right? Obviously, there's no tension here. Like, we could be friends with an answer like that. But three days ago, I had the next longest conversation that I've had with her. And it kind of just broke my heart. I'm like, that's not good. Do you even know I go to church? Do you know that I do this? Do you know that I would always do something for you? Because I'm nice, but apparently I'm not very friendly. But see, that can change. I want that to change. I want coronavirus to make me friendly. That can create a permanent change in me. 
I really think we have an opportunity here to stand back and say, Lord, how do you want this to change me? God, how do you want to permanently change me in difficult times? Because that's what James 1, 2 says, right? It's our favorite verse on difficulty. What does James say? Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and lacking in nothing. What does James say? Count it all joy because trials change you. Trials change me. I want to be changed. And from here on out in my life, when I face difficult circumstances, I pray that this is my prayer. Lord, change me. Because here's the thing. The only way to take a chunk of metal and turn it into something useful is to heat it up. Right? A chunk of metal is not very good for much of anything other than a paperweight or dropping on your toe. But if you heat it up, right, you can make it into an ax head or you can make it into a screwdriver or you can make it into a horseshoe. You can make it into anything. But I spend so much time when I feel like I'm in a hot spot saying, Lord, make it not be hot anymore. Cool it off. When in reality, I should say, Lord, how do you want to use this to forge me into something that you can use? How do you want to change me? So that's it. That's number two, right? If we're going to live through any difficulty, this one, the next one, the one after that, like we know how the story ends, we have to acknowledge that God is working and be thankful, and we have to pray for a permanent change, right? So that's what the frogs tell us. Now let's look at the gnats. What do the gnats have to say? Verse 16, then the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth. And there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Point number three is this, fight using gnats. Fight using gnats. The most interesting thing about this little passage to me is this. It's the gnats that finally stump Pharaoh's magicians, right? Pharaoh's magicians can take a stick and turn it into a snake. They can take their hand and make it leprous. They can take water and turn it into blood. They can make frogs appear, which my three-year-old son would think was the coolest thing in the world. But it's gnats that finally defeat them? Like if I was gonna pick all the plagues and be like, what was it that finally defeated the magicians? The last one I would pick is gnats. Little gnats. I mean, don't get me wrong. I've been in a few places with a lot of mosquitoes and this can be extremely annoying. But the gnats, the gnats is what finally defeated the magicians. And I think about this in my own life and follow me here for a second. But so many times, the things that actually defeat our enemies, the things that actually change things in my life are things that at first glance I think of as insignificant, as little, unimportant. No, 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 swat it away. I mean, we already talked about it, right? Fear. Fear is huge. Fear seems insurmountable sometimes. And yet, what did we just learn two points ago? Combats fear. Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving, a thing that I don't think enough about. This is a little gnat. 
but it's thanksgiving that conquers fear. Man, Satan has the power of addiction, right? And we see it running rampant in our society. Never shut society down for that one. Different point. That's an epidemic. Satan has the power of addiction. What do we have? We have the power of fasting. Man, read Isaiah 58. Look at what fasting does. I think fasting is an untapped into resource when it comes to fighting addiction. But it's, it's a gnat, you know, and we, we swat it away. Satan has the power of depression and we have the power of community, which we're doing in all different ways now. Like for the last week, I've spent my time driving around in my truck and being like, who can I encourage right now? Like, who can I encourage right now? The community doesn't look the way I want it to look. And prayerfully, we'll be back to that soon because I love community. But I've sent text messages to people that I haven't talked to in five years. How you doing? Just wanted to check in. Thinking about you. Praying for you. Actually praying for you, right? I actually have been trying to spend a minute praying for them before I text that. So you don't want to lie about prayer. It's bad. <laughs> and we all do it. Um, <laughs> Satan has a fear of financial ruin, man. That's real. That's scary. That's insurmountable. We have the generosity of the saints. And the saints are generous. And we have the ability to support each other. Man, it's the little things that sometimes I think we think are not terribly important that shift the balance in these things. What about praise? My wife said this, no amount of social distancing can take away the gift of music. Right? Like we had a dance party in my living room two days ago. The kids just bouncing off the walls and praise music going loud. Right? When, when Rome takes everything away from Paul and Silas, what do they still have? In the bottom of the jail. Praise, man. Worship. Satan has Pharaoh. Pharaoh's evil, man. Satan has evil. And what does Moses have, really? Obedience. That's what Moses has. That's Moses' weapon against Pharaoh's evil. I will obey. God, you tell me to walk in there again, I'll walk in there again. You tell me to make gnats, I'll lift out my staff and you can make gnats. Evil is defeated by obedience. We don't talk about it enough because yeah, it's obedience. Yeah, it's okay, it's important. I'm sure it's important. It's yeah, you know. Satan has power. He does. It's like the magicians. Their power is from Satan. Satan has power. You know what we have? Prayer. And prayer defeats him. And we don't give it enough weight or credit. Too often we think of it as a gnat. But here's the thing. If we want to live like we know the end of the story, we got to fight using gnats. We got to fight using gnats, right? All right, we got to acknowledge that God is working and be thankful. We got to pray for permanent change and we got to fight using gnats. Use all these things, thanksgiving and fasting and community and worship and generosity and obedience and prayer and gnat after gnat after gnat after gnat. Just beat them down. It's hugely important and not that difficult. I think that's the beautiful thing to me about the gnats. These are easy things to do if I'll do them, if I'll give them the importance that they have. Okay, so we've got frogs, we've got gnats, now we've got flies. What can we learn from the flies? Verse 20. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh at he, as he goes out to the water and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. Or else if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and on your servants and your people and into your houses. And the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies shall be there. 
that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus, I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow, this sign shall happen. And the Lord did so. There came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and into his servants' houses. Throughout all the land of Egypt, the land was ruined by the swarms of flies. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, go sacrifice to your God within the land. But Moses said, it would not be right to do so. For the offerings we shall sacrifice to the Lord our God are an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? We must go three days journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he tells us. So Pharaoh said, I will let you go to sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness. Only you must not go very far away. Plead for me. Here's number four. Don't compromise. Don't compromise. That's what Pharaoh wants Moses to do. And it would be so easy for Moses to do that. He's been through the Nile turning into blood and frogs and gnats and flies. And surely this is enough, Lord. He's set out a decent compromise. Let's just go and do that, okay? We still get to sacrifice. We still get to be in the land. We still get what you want. But they wouldn't have got what they wanted. They wouldn't have got what God wants, which is the promised land for them. But Pharaoh wants Moses to compromise. And it's always what the enemy wants us to do in times of trouble. When we're in a difficult spot, whether it's health, marriage, finances, relationships, whatever it is, know, know this, promise, the enemy is gonna come to you and ask you to compromise. It's gonna happen. At least it's happened to me every time I've been in a difficult spot. And he's gonna do it in one of two ways. The first thing he's gonna ask you to do is this, compromise your integrity. So we say this, don't. Don't compromise your integrity. There's this tendency right now, if I'm gonna self-quarantine, I might as well self-medicate. Right? When they threatened to shut down the Oregon um, uh, liquor stores, like there was a run on them. Gotta have my liquor. I'm gonna have to medicate. There's been an 11.6% rise in pornography use since the beginning of this. Like, compromise. People are social media binging and Netflix binging and all these things that they said they wouldn't do or didn't wanna do, but man, it's just, I mean, it's so easy to justify right now. Look at all this craziness. Like, I just, I, I just an extra couple of drinks tonight. I really need it. I was home with the kids all day. I just need to watch that. I just need to zone out. I, I don't have time. I can't read my Bible right now. I just need a, just a little compromise. Just a little compromise. So I don't know if you can tell, but I have braces, right? Braces on the bottom teeth, okay? I was at church the other day. Chad Hansen thought I had a big old dip in my lip. No, Chad. I don't chew tobacco. And if I did, I wouldn't do it at church, right? Braces. But here's the thing. I had braces 25 years ago. 25 years ago, I had braces and my teeth were perfect. And when they got all done with my braces, they glued a wire on my bottom teeth, okay? From, from like here to here, there was a wire glued on my bottom teeth to keep them straight, okay? And for 24 and a half years, it was great. But apparently, six, seven months ago or something, I must, have, I must have bit into something hard and it slightly bent that wire. And as it slightly bent that wire, it started to move my teeth and it started to tweak them. And I didn't, I didn't even notice. And it just completely tweaked them to the point where this tooth now is sticking outside of my upper teeth. Like I wouldn't care if it was just for looks because I don't smile like this, mm. you know? So no one cares, right? But they're like, you're gonna lose that tooth if we don't change this. And the thing is, I don't even know when the wire got bent. That's compromised integrity, man. It is. It's this tiny little thing 
that we just, ah, you know what, I'll just, I'll allow that for now. It's a special circumstance. It's this little bend. And before you know it, the whole thing is just tweaked off kilter. And you know what the problem is? The fix is painful. Like, if you guys have kids who have braces, just be nice to them. These things are awful. Like, my jaw hurts. I can't talk. I keep slurring. People think I'm chewing tobacco. One tiny little, mm, and the whole thing slowly rotates away from where it used to be. That's compromised integrity. And the enemy is going to come to us, even this week, and ask you to compromise your integrity. And just like Moses, no. Just say no, right? Don't compromise your integrity. But the second thing is this. Don't compromise your integrity, but also don't compromise your growth. Don't compromise your growth. So when I was in eighth grade, I was super into basketball. Like, because obviously I have the build for basketball, right? All five foot, nine and a quarter inches of me, right? I loved basketball. And I, I was a starter on my team of five. We had a five person basketball team at my little private school, which means I got a lot of playing time. And I love basketball. But eighth grade year, Right as basketball practice was about to start, I broke my right arm at the shoulder doing backflips off of a swing in the playground. You know, because that's what you do in eighth grade. And I was devastated, man. It just strapped my arm right here. And I thought, that's it, dude. Basketball is done. And the coach came up to me and he's like, no, you practice more and you practice harder. And I'm like, I can't even. And he goes, no, you practice with your left hand. And at the end of this, you'll be a better basketball player. And I did, man. I practiced a ton because I loved it. I dribble with my left hand. I shoot with my left hand. I pass with my left hand. And three months later, the thing comes off and I was a much better basketball player. I still wasn't any good, but I was significantly better than I had been before. See, here's the thing. Difficult times difficult circumstances, they always limit our ability to do some of the things that we want to be able to do. Good things, spiritual things, but they don't limit our ability to do all of the things that we're able to do. And the key is to spend more time on the other things that you can do, right? There's this great verse in 1 Timothy. It's 1 Timothy 4, 7, and it says this, train or exercise yourself for godliness. Matt took this verse years ago and did an entire series on spiritual disciplines because that's what it's saying. Saying, hey, there's all these disciplines. There's all these ways that you can train. There's all these exercises you can do that create in you godliness. But if you've got an injury, if you've got a situation, if you've got social distancing, there might be some of those that you can't do right now. I mean, there was this whole list of spiritual disciplines. Fellowship was one. That's going to be a little harder right now. Celebration was one. That's going to be a little harder right now. Study was one. Oh, wait a second. I actually have more time for study now. I have more ability to study now. Praise was one. Man, I got... The kids at home, I can do a dance party in the living room. We can turn praise music on. My kids were singing praise music top of their voices when I walked in the door today. It just blessed me. It's like, yeah, we can do that. Fasting's one. I know we talked about it already, but how many people were like, you know what? This is crazy. I'm gonna fast. How many of us, that was our reaction, right? Like, what is the opposite of hoarding? Fasting. You know what? I'm just not going to eat for a little while. I'm going to pray for our nation. I'm going to pray for our people. I'm going to pray for those who can't eat. I'm just, I'm going to fast. I can do that a lot. That's easy. You can even avoid going to the grocery store by doing that. What about prayer, man? What about prayer? My great grandma was a missionary in Africa in the 30s. Super cool. I got a picture of her with like the whole full-on Livingston, I presume, outfit on with the, like the British tan hat and like standing with bamboo and stuff behind her. I mean, she was a missionary. 
My great grandpa decided he wanted to be a missionary to the Mormons. So they moved to Salt Lake City and he would preach on the steps of the temple until they arrested him. And that was my great grandparents. My great grandma was 96. She lived with us. Now, when you're 96, you are not going to be a missionary in Africa anymore, are you? You're probably not going to be singing a lot. But you know what my great-grandma did? And she prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed. My great-grandma would spend four to six hours a day praying for her family because that's the exercise she could still do. Man, don't compromise your growth in a time of difficulty. When something's been taken away, double down on something else. I think that's how we live like we know how the story's gonna end, right? That's how we live like we know how the story's gonna end. That's our list, right? We acknowledge that God is working and we pray for permanent change and we fight using gnats and we do not compromise. Your integrity or your growth. And the final thing is this. It's in verses 29 through 32. Let's read them. It says, then Moses said, behold, I'm going out from you and I will plead with the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants and from his people tomorrow. Only let not Pharaoh cheat again by not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord. And the Lord did as Moses asked and removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants and from his people, and not one remained. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. Point number five is this, don't, be hardened. Don't be hardened. I mean, you almost can't read one of these chapters without talking about this thing, who hardened Pharaoh, God or himself, or how did this all work? But I read this quote a while ago from Warren Wearsby, and I loved it. It says this, does this mean that God was unfair and Pharaoh shouldn't be held responsible for what he did? No, for the same sun that melts the ice also hardens the clay. It all depends on the nature of the material. The same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. It all depends on the nature of the material. Or how about this? Here's another quote. This is what a elderly person that I text recently and said, hey, this is crazy times. If there's anything I can do for you, how can I help you out? This is what they text me back. It's amazing how times like these bring out the best in some people and the worst in others. I'm thinking about that thing with Pharaoh. Like all this difficulty, all this turmoil, like it encourages Moses at the end. And it's something that Israel can look back on and know God's faith. But Pharaoh, man, Pharaoh just gets hardened. Pharaoh allows it to harden him. And that's, an easy place for all of us to go in times of difficulty. The difficulty can harden us. It can harden us to other people. And I think that the harder things are, the more important it is to give grace and the more important it is to give mercy because there are difficult situations that don't have a right answer, right? Like one of the best examples I can think of is putting your parent in a nursing home. Okay, because I've seen my parents walk this out a couple times recently. Your parent gets to a point where you have to decide if you're gonna put them in a home, right? And the family gets together and they have this family meeting and we, I have a great family, man. My, we love each other, but even in my family, this was tough and there were hurt feelings and there were hard things and there was opportunity for people to get hardened because there's, there's these opinions, no, you should keep her home. That's what's best for her. No, you should put her in a home. That's what's best for her. Who's right? They're both right. That is best in many ways. That's best in many ways, right? 
How much time should you spend with grandma? Should you be down there every day? Yes, but also you have to devote time to your family. I mean, how do you weigh these things and walk these things out when you're in a time of difficulty that's not clear-cut sin one way or the other? With grace, with love, with patience, with forgiveness, and with a refusal to let ourselves be hardened by these things. More grace, more mercy, more listening, more understanding. Because I can get hardened by these things. I can get hardened by other people's reactions to them. And I think that's what my enemy wants me to do. And break relationships and break friendships and hurt families. I mean, that had the opportunity to hurt my family. And my family's tight, man. They wouldn't let it. They wouldn't let it. There was letters that went back and forth and be like, hey, I disagree with you, but I love you. Don't let my disagreement mean that I don't love you. There is times for that. There's times to correct people, absolutely. And there's also times for grace and mercy and listening and understanding. I think that's really important for us. Anytime we're in difficulty, every difficulty, don't be hardened. Don't be hardened, be softened. Wrap people in. Bring people with you. I mean, we learn later in this story that there's a lot of Egyptians who leave with the Israelites. Why? Because the Israelites were loving and accepting and, hey, come with us. Come with us. So that's it. That's Exodus chapter eight. If we want to live like we know how the story ends, we have to acknowledge that God is working and be thankful. We gotta pray for permanent change, man. Lord, change me in this circumstance through this thing. Make me different. Make me friendly, please. Fight using gnats, all those little things. Prayer and fasting and worship and study. And don't compromise our integrity or our growth. Continue to exercise yourself unto godliness with the exercises available to you. Double down. And let's not be hardened. So Father, I thank you for this brilliant chapter, for your timely word. I pray for me, even this day, Lord, that I wouldn't be hardened, that I would be loving, that I would be bold, that I would be listening to you, that I would be acting on what you tell me, and that I would be gracious and merciful and loving, and that you would change me. Change each of us through this. Make us more like you, as we refuse to compromise, as we exercise unto godliness, Lord, as we're thankful for the fact that you're still working. Be with us even this week. In Jesus' name, amen.